Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to a very special episode of Swings and Mishes. I'm Jeremy Taché, your producer, joined as always by Craig Mish. And today we have a very interesting interview with Dan Jennings that we will get to in just a couple of minutes. Just want to sort of debrief on where things are at with Marlins spring training real quick first, and then we'll get right into that interview along with an interview at the end uh, with Austin Dean, which is way less serious than the interview with Dan Jennings. Uh, but Craig, the Marlins are in kind of peculiar spot um, in terms of their starting outfield going forward. And that's been the big battle to look at this far this spring training where the platoon word has been thrown around a little bit in left with Curtis Granderson and maybe Austin Dean. We don't know really what to expect out of Lewis Brinson in center field. And then the big question mark is right field where Peter O'Brien finally a couple days ago broke out of what was, I believe, a two for 23 slump to start the year with 14 strikeouts. But he hit a grand slam. Garrett Cooper's out there and right. Austin Dean might get some more playing time. What do you think is going on in the outfield with the Miami Marlins at this point? Yeah, it's a little confusing to to figure out right now, and I think it'll sort itself out over the next week or so. I don't, I don't think that this is going to drag right up until opening day. I think these guys will know potentially maybe by the 21st, 22nd, something along that. So they'll have another seven days hypothetically to compete. We know Lewis Brinson is going to be the opening day center fielder, and I believe that he'll bat probably sixth in the lineup to open up the season. That's what it appears. And then things get a little bit murky from there. Now, understanding that it does appear that no matter what Peter O'Brien does this spring, he's going to be the opening day right fielder. Is it something that I agree with? No, I don't. I've seen enough at-bats of him this spring. This is not spring stats. This is watching the player behind home plate. If you guys know me by now, I don't just look at the stats. I go to the games. O'Brien's grand slam was off Colby Allard. There's a reason why it was off Colby Allard because he came in and he put three guys on and then he threw him a 91-mile-an-hour fastball and he hit it over the left field fence. If Peter O'Brien sees 90, 91, 92 all season long, he's going to hit 40 home runs just like he would in the minor leagues. My concern with him is can he hit a 94, 95, 96, 97-mile-an-hour fastball? The average fastball in Major League Baseball is 93 miles an hour. And so until I see that consistently, and he's never done it at the big league level, I'm still going to be skeptical of Peter O'Brien. This is not me being skeptical of the person. He's a very nice guy. He did an amazing thing for the Marlins this offseason, kind of parading around the new logo and being right. part of all the things that they did. But, Jeremy, my job here is not to just shill and kiss the behind of every player on the Miami Marlins. I'm not going to do that. I'm on this podcast. I'm going to call it as I see it, and I certainly hope he succeeds. But the reality is, at this point, my concern is, can he still even hit at the big league level? I don't know the answer to that. That being said, there are still questions about the rest of the outfield, too, because if not Peter O'Brien, then who? Uh, I believe Curtis Granderson's option is going to get picked up here in the next 24 hours, mm -hmm. or his contract will be purchased, however they term that. And then he'll be involved in a platoon where, against all right-handed pitching, Curtis Granderson will either be in left field or right field. So then the question is, beyond that, who makes the team? Um, Garrett Cooper, at this point, has two options left, and Austin Dean has three. So let's you know, put that into the equation as well. Hmm. Rosel Herrera is going to have to make the Marlins because you cannot 
not have a backup center fielder on the big league team. And Herrera will serve in that kind of Yadiel Rivera role that he had last year. And they're hoping that Herrera has a little bit of a bigger bat than, than Yadi did, although Yadi did come through in a lot of big moments last year. So Herrera essentially is the 25th man on the 25-man roster. And so that does not leave enough room for Garrett Cooper and Austin Dean, I don't think. And by the way, I heard when I was at the park uh, yesterday, I believe, or the day before, that Gabriel Guerrero still has a shot to make this team. And they would have to give him up if he doesn't make the team. The other part of this that is interesting, Jeremy, is that someone's going to have to leave the 40-man coming up here because they don't have a catcher, Hmm. okay? Uh, Brian Holiday has to be added to the 40-man because he's going to probably be the opening day catcher for the Marlins this season. So they still have a lot to work out over the next couple of weeks it does feel like it's coming down to Austin Dean and Garrett Cooper for that last sort of outfield position. And I don't, at this point I can't handicap it. I don't know which way to go. We would assume that Dean uh, could, would, would be the guy in that platoon with Granderson, but I, I don't know how uh, Cooper would accept that. I mean, he has no choice. He's part of the team, but he's got really nothing left to prove in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, he spent a lot of years there. And he does need full-time playing time, so it, it kind of does make sense a little bit, but that would only leave the Marlins with one option with him left. So it, small potatoes in the big scheme of Major League Baseball, but with the Marlins, they certainly have to make some decisions here over the next couple of weeks and get this figured out because it's opening day is coming here. This, I mean, it's so funny. People keep saying it's early in spring training. Opening day is two weeks from Thursday. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still early it's still right. early what are you talking about opening day is the 28th of march everyone thinks it's the first week in april the final four is like two weeks after opening day i've never right. seen anything like this before so right. we'll see how it works out i wish all of them the best if this is a genuine competition but mm-hmm. as i illustrated at the top here in my belief and this is not an indictment on o'brien i just think that he should be in the mix in that competition with the other guys i'm not sure why he's just being handed the right field position I, that that I really don't understand. I, I suppose it's just basically because the other the rest of the team doesn't have a lot of power, and that's the right. reason why. But to me, boy, that would have been an easy problem to solve. They could have signed uh, Carlos Gonzalez or somebody else, put him in right field for the time being, you know, trade him at the deadline. But they chose not to go that route, and so uh, let's just kind of watch that as it progresses over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, in terms of production, he's he. Peter O'Brien was dead last in production. We've talked about how spring training stats sort of mean nothing, but it is sort of a gauge, like you said, when you really break down the at-bats, what's been going on uh, in terms of approach and in terms of ability to hit the fastball. But we're I, think, gonna... I think that's important also, and, and not to mention is that, like, Peter O'Brien, he got to uh, – and again, this is not – you hit a grand slam, you hit a grand slam, you hit a home run at a major league baseball game. I'm not taking that away from him, Okay. But the other hit he got in the game was like on a check swing and it went to right field. Oh, right. he's got two hits. Like, <laughs> I, I understand that that's what shows up in the box score. And so if you notice on my Twitter feed, at Craig Mish, very rarely am I going all in on games that I'm not at. Mm-hmm. And this is very evident if you follow me because I'm not there. So I don't feel like I can give you a full depiction as to actually what's going on. But when I am there and I am watching – and for anybody who goes to spring training games, you know where you find me in the first couple of innings? I am right behind home plate, sneaking into some seat. I'm sorry, Marlins. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> but, that's, but that's where I am. That's where I am because I, I try to at least watch and understand what's happening. Not that you can get a better 
view from anywhere in the park, but right. I like to do that to see as much as I possibly can going in. So hopefully somebody will emerge in the next couple of weeks in this outfield because the offense going into this season has a, a lot to be left to be desired. That's for sure. But at least we got that starting rotation. All right. We're going to, that gonna, part is okay. Yes. That part feels good. Um, so we're going to delay the inevitable uh, no longer. And we're going to get straight to this Dan Jennings interview here on Swings and Mishes. Uh, stick around until the end because there is some juicy stuff in this interview. And you will get a really fun interview uh, with Austin Dean, which is way more brief. But it, it breaks down some sports movies from all of our either childhoods, adulthoods, and, and everywhere in between. So stick around here on Swings and Mishes. Since we started up the podcast with Swings and Mishes, a lot of new Marlins fans may have not heard the name of my next guest, but you guys have heard me talk about him frequently and glowingly for his job that he did both as director of player personnel and the general manager and the manager of the Miami Marlins. And now he is a executive a special assistant to Mike Rizzo with the Washington Nationals. Dan Jennings is here with us and going to spend some time talking about his history with the then Florida and Miami Marlins. So, Dan, thank you so much for taking some time with me to do this. And it is an honor and a pleasure to sit down with you and talk about all of this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. Glad to be here and always fun to discuss really what was a great run. 13 years with the Marlins organization and a lot of fond memories. Certainly nothing like winning that World Series in 03. It was special. And, uh, you know, there's some certainly sad and tragic ones as well, like the loss of Jose. So uh, it, it ran its course. And, uh, again, most of the memories were very pleasurable and, uh, and a lot of fun. And you were in the midst and responsible for a lot of the positive things and a lot of the players that came through this organization. And later on in this interview, we're going to get to all of them and talk about all of the players that Dan Jennings oversaw when he was both the GM and director of player personnel. The stars that came through South Florida were really incredible under your watch, under Mike Hill's watch as well. And even before that, Larry Beinfest too. Uh, Let's kind of start off with starting off when you joined the Marlins. I believe it was – 2002 and ironically you came over and you were friends with the president now of the Marlins Mike Hill from your Tampa Bay years also Stan Meek from your Tampa Bay years so what was it like initially when you first came over and you first took the job as director of player personnel with the Marlins well the way that got started Larry Beinfest and I had worked together in Seattle and uh, I was a scout and then a cross checker and Larry was a, a farm director so uh, Larry reached out to, at that time, Chuck Lamar in Tampa and asked for permission to interview me prior to the start of the draft season. The Tampa Bay Rays declined it. After the draft, they allowed me to go and interview with the Marlins. And Larry said, DJ, I don't need to meet with you, but I need you to go to New York and meet with our owner, Jeffrey Loria. I go to New York, meet Jeffrey. We have about a two-hour, just a great, it really wasn't even an interview. It was a conversation, and I was hired. And so we are talking, Larry and I, and he says, you know, I need to get somebody who can be a solid guy in the office administratively. I said, do you know Mike Hill? He says, well, I know him a little bit through, uh, you know, farm director meetings. I said, call Mike. You won't make another call. So he calls Mike. Mike calls me. What's going on? What's it like over there? Give me the pros and cons. And anyway, that's kind of how we became who we became in that uh, 
summer of 2002 uh, before we got real busy and did a lot of things to put us in a great position and to uh, win a World Series in 03. Yeah, and, and going into 2003, I, I, it was so incredible to see the way that that season played out because you're coming off a season with the Marlins in 2002. Well, yeah, I mean, the team is good, but no clue that all of a sudden, after a month of the season, Dan, you guys would fire your manager and Jeff Torborg. All of a sudden, Jack McKeon comes in. All of a sudden, Dontra Willis, Miguel Cabrera, one after the other. And then you guys, in the end, win the World Series. Did you have any inkling going into that season? You knew all the personnel on the team that you had a chance to even win it? You know what? We thought we would be good. Uh, I'll never forget the day I come in. Uh, it was it was in the uh, in the fall, and I had a crazy proposal, or what they thought was crazy. And I wrote it on a Delta napkin about why we should go. We were missing one piece of the puzzle, a three-hole hitter, why we should go and get Pudge Rodriguez. So we started the process. Jeffrey says, you know, that don't sound so crazy. So we got busy, reached out to who at the time was the trainer with the Texas Rangers that I knew, got some information. Tony Perez got involved with getting information down out of Puerto Rico. Next thing you know, Larry makes an offer to, uh, to, to his agent at the time, uh, Pudge's agent, Jeff Morad, and we end up getting the deal one year uh, for $10 million and – that was the huge piece of the puzzle that helped us go over the top. So we thought we had a good team. We didn't know how good, but we thought with our young pitching, if they stayed healthy, we could be a playoff club. And you guys were, but I think that it goes without saying that some of the acquisitions that you were involved in, reacquiring Jeff Conine was part of that. Uh, when Michael Lowell went down, Miguel Cabrera comes up. All of a sudden, he's now here we stand in 2019. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Dontrell Willis comes up, nights that he pitched, you couldn't park at Dolphin Stadium, Pro Player Stadium, whatever it was called. So, I mean, DJ, was there some magic there too a little bit? It just kind of felt that way, and, and we'll get to this. But And I know that there were some players that were not back on the team after 2003, after you guys winning, but it certainly never felt the same until after Josh Beckett was running over to first base and you guys won that thing. Yeah. It, you know what? There was some magic. And, and after a while, as we got closer to the, the uh, postseason, you almost felt that destiny thing. And uh, I, I, you have to tip your hat to Larry Beinfest. It's a shame Larry's not working in baseball. One of the single smartest guys I've ever been a part of. We used to have this argument, disagreement about there's smart and there's bright. And Larry was a very bright guy. He had, a, he had a, an ability to read people and kind of forecast the next thing that we needed to do and stay ahead. And when, uh, when McKeon was brought over, he brought a mindset of, I'll teach you, you guys are good enough, I'll teach you how to win if you want to get on board. If you don't, there's the door, you can get out. And Jack brought that mindset, and the guys bought in. We brought up Cabrera and Willis that were great guys to bring up. The good of it was, as they produced right away, as 19-year-old kids. The bad of it was, is I think we had some people who expected everybody we brought up from that point forward to be Dontrell and to be Cabrera. And that's just, I mean, you're talking about a Hall of Famer and a guy who went 9-1 and won the first half. And, well, like you said, D-train nights. You couldn't, you couldn't find a parking spot. It was a great, uh, it was a great thing. And um, the, when, when Lowell got hurt, 
It was the day before, uh, uh, it was the last day of August, and you had to have everything in place. And Larry pulled off that deal with uh, Baltimore in flight, coming back from Seattle across the country. I was in Boston that day. We had a conference call after our game was over. Lowell's hurt. What are we going to do? What's the best thing? You got to go get Mr. Marlin. You got to bring Jeff Conine back. He is the piece. We had some people on the call that were not wild about giving up the couple of young minor league pitchers that were in the mix. And this is where the voice of reason, and I'll never forget where I was. I was standing in the commons in Boston, walking around on my cell phone, and McKeon says, GD it, do you want to win the damn thing or play around? And when Jack made that comment, Everybody, the mindset changed going, you know what? The manager believes we can win it. We need this piece. And the deal was done. Larry pulled it off. Conine came and Mr. Marlin brought us the magic. Yeah, it was, of all the things that I've experienced in South Florida, uh, you know, I experienced the World Series in 97, DJ, but the one in 2003 was just so special because I think in sports, when you don't expect something to happen and it happens, it means so much. So now we get to the next era of, of you and with the Marlins and Marlins baseball. And, it, you know, for me, it just never was the same. Uh, and we'll get to kind of what happened there. But in 2004, uh, Pudge Rodriguez goes, he leaves, he goes to Detroit. Derek Lee is gone. Uh, some other players are gone. But, you know, some of the core is left. But at that point, at 2004, that magic just really never came back at that point. The commitment was there. Uh, from the ownership, uh, Carlos Delgado, I believe, was brought in shortly after that, and uh, you know, certainly there was an attempt and there was a, there was a try, but it just never was the same after that. Some people feel like DJ there was not given the chance to repeat. I don't know if you feel that way or if the effort was really made to sustain it. Yeah, I do feel that way. The, you know what, my my father may have had the best descriptive remark of that. We were a good team. You know, people look at that 2003 World Series and it's been. 15 now 16 years ago and was it a fluke well you know what they had excuse me they had three times the payroll that we had but you look around there there were all-stars at every position gold glovers at every position and it was a team of young cocky confident pitchers who went out and went on a mission to do a job when we lost pudge it was really the heart of our body left us he was such the glue and the component of that team D. Lee was, you know, the quiet, gentle giant who could play first as good as anybody and had the power. So, yeah, I think I think we could have sustained winning for a few more years. Um, we were still on the euphoria of winning the World Series, but there was a frustration level of this team can be good again and again. And I think it was 05 we went out and got Delgado and tried to rekindle it. And we were in it until the wheels kind of fell off in September on the night when uh, we matched up in Houston against a guy named Roger Clemens, whose mother passed away, and that that sunk our season. Yeah. Now, for the next few years after that, it's a complete change for what the Marlins are used to. Josh Beckett is gone. Brad Penny is gone. A.J. Burnett, Lowell, everyone is gone. And then you're back into a little bit of a rebuilding mode with the Marlins. There weren't a lot of people that had confidence that that team was going to succeed or be any good. And honestly, some some really good players came through the organization at that time, Hanley Ramirez being one of them. 
Uh, Dan Ugla, a Rule 5 guy, ends up being one of them too. Josh Willingham and a lot of pitchers also along the line, Josh Johnson. So there was a really short period of sustainability where there were a lot of young players, DJ, that were brought in. But I think that the question becomes is that what happened? Why did it never get to that next step? There were days that we thought that there was going to be a trade at some point to maybe add Manny Ramirez. I had heard that at one point. I mean, you guys had a, a core group of really good players, but there was no second level to that team. Yeah, that we went through a, a period of time where we totally didn't hit the reset button. It was kind of a partial reset, and that was a mistake. You know, as you look back now, we should have done what the Cubs have done in the past, what the Astros did a few years back, and hit the reset. And I know Larry wanted to do that. His mindset was, you know what, let's just blow it all up, start from ground zero, and rebuild this thing the right way. And to Jeffrey's credit, Jeffrey always wanted to win. But you either had to go way out there with the financial commitments, which, you know what, at that time, there was not – the turnstiles weren't turning – uh, no, no one would ever in their right mind want to trade Miguel Cabrera, but we didn't have the revenue sources to do it. We bring back two guys and Andrew Miller and Cameron Maben uh, with, with some other players who were the right guys to bring back. They just weren't ready to perform at the major league level when we did. You know, we had four options on, on Andrew Miller, who signed and went straight to the major leagues. Now you look at what he's been over the last four or five years. He turned into the guy that we thought he could be. It just didn't happen in Miami. And there, was, there were other um, players that you could say went through that same course of adjustment and did not perform to their highest level while they were down there. And it certainly became frustrating. But... It was time to do a total teardown and a rebuild, and we never completely hit the reset, and it set the organization back because of it. There is discussion around this period of time, fair or unfair, that the owner of the Marlins, Jeffrey Loria, starts getting more involved in the day-to-day operations as to what's happening. There was a period of time, I believe, uh, back when the team was winning the World Series, 02, 03, 04, uh, where he signs off on players. Certainly we know how much he loves the game and he's heavily involved, but managers start coming and going, Dan. You see this. Uh, you know, Joe Girardi is brought in, Edwin Rodriguez, Tony Perez. It's just one manager after the next. Was there a time, a, pi- a pivotal time for you in your tenure with the Marlins where the owner starts to, in the end, get more involved or too involved? And can you pinpoint that time if indeed that was the case? Uh, you know, the thing I'll say about Jeffrey, he – he was involved, but I think you could say that about 29 other owners, you know, to what degree it varies. Um, but he wanted to win, and he wanted to make sure that we understood his commitment to winning and utilize things that he had heard, he had read. He stayed up all hours of the night. I mean, it, there was nothing for me to receive a phone call at 1 in the morning, and then we are watching West Coast baseball games. Um, so he was involved from my 13-year tenure there all the time. Um, I, you know, I think some of, the, some of the things, like anybody, there was knee-jerk reactions versus showing a sign of patience. And there were times when we stumbled and struggled where patience was what was needed the most. And failure to do that, recognize that, implement that, cost us. And as it was costing us, it continued to set us back. 
then we put a heavy emphasis on you know some some draft picks that got there some of the international players that got there and contributed and you started to see the pieces come back in place in a big way and it it took a turn going in that direction that was going to lead it out of where you know from really about 2006 7 right in there although I know one year with Freddie I think we won 89 and had a nice little run at it um but that full reset that should have and needed to happen didn't and so the band-aid fix just put us kind of in a level of mediocrity that was not fun to be a part of and didn't really give us a clear path or a direction we're here with Dan Jennings. So, DJ, you are still at this point the director of player personnel, and a new ballpark is on the way. And you move into that new ballpark. Everyone else does as well. The park opens up. You guys are chasing Albert Pujols. You end up signing Heath Bell. You end up signing Jose Reyes, Mark Burley. There's optimism for this new ballpark. I don't know that there's ever been a uh, – well, we will get to a, a lower point, but a higher and lower point in terms of on the field. What happened there? That, I mean, they, from that point forward, from the move into the new ballpark, DJ, there were some fleeting moments, but it was never the same as being in the old ballpark. There was no success there. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was almost like the curse of the Orange Bowl. You know, I don't know. that. Uh, I know that's sacred ground viewed by people who are from Dade County, Miami. And, you know, I can remember the day we broke ground and, and that was discussed. Hey, this is the Orange Bowl. A lot of great memories here. It's sacred ground. Um, that year, that year got off to some things uh, in a bad way. Certain players responded and it created a negative aura coming out of spring training. Uh, Ozzy was beautiful in spring training. There was energy. Ozzy was being Ozzy. There was the quick wit. There was, you know, he knew how to chop players and love players in a great way to, to make them play and respect him. Uh, certainly two veterans brought in, like Burley, like Reyes. It was, it was a good sign going in the right direction. And then when the Castro statement come out, that was kind of the beginning of the end. We started to unravel in a bad way. Um, even from opening day when the roof didn't fully close. You know, there were some people that had things to say about the health status of Muhammad Ali. And it just, there was so much of a spectacle placed on the stadium opening a new ballpark, which it should have been. It should have been an exciting thing. But you had people who were anti-building it, certainly the funding of it. Um, the spectacle that was made on opening day and the stuff that happened. And it, it almost became a snake bit negative feature. And then the way that we performed on the field and it compounded itself. Then Ozzy makes a statement about Castro and it was the year that got away in a terrible, terrible way. Yeah, it was the beginning of a, of a kind of sort of new era of Marlins baseball because then a press conference happens at the end of the year and Ozzy is gone, Larry is gone. Uh, Mike Hill is the president of baseball operations, and you get your opportunity to be the general manager of the Miami Marlins. And under this time, with so much going on with managers coming in and coming out, DJ, here comes Giancarlo Stanton, first Mike Stanton. Here comes Christian Yelich. Here comes JT Real Muto. Here comes Jose Fernandez. I mean, DJ, these are all guys under your watch here, you and Mike, 
uh, and Stan Meek even at that time. And we'll get to Stan and kind of the way the draft sort of went. But an incredible group of players that I think that people forget came through rather than maybe going through, you know, 10 minutes on each one, just your thoughts on the group of talent. And if you have any you know kind of stories as to how you knew to acquire these guys via draft. Well, you knew it was a special group as they were starting to roll in year by year. You have to tip your hat to Stan Meek and his staff for some of the picks that were made up high in the draft and hitting on them. That's where you're going to invest the money, and these guys did it, and they hit and stuck. We had a window of time where we had taken some high picks, and one year had quite a few of them, and they didn't give us the production that was needed in, to have that many first-round picks, and we missed on some, and they were disappointing. And when you do that over a number of years, it sets the organization back. They were not arriving when they should have to bring us that influx of talent. And to Stan's credit, they went out and, you know, it's Jose, it's it's Giancarlo at that time was Michael. Then here comes Yelich, Riamuto's in that mix. Um Albert Gonzalez had signed a young man by the name of Marcelo Zuna. These guys start playing together down in, in A ball and double A, and they're winning together, and you can recognize uh, this has got a chance to be special. And you got this brash kid out of Tampa who, man, alive, he sets the market on fire. And I, I'll tell you this, I'll never forget it. We had that spring training um, the year Jose won the Rookie of the Year, we had three injuries, starting pitcher injuries to go down, and we are in uh, we are in New Orleans um, playing an exhibition game, and Larry Vinefest makes the decision that we're going to bring up this kid. Do we think he can handle it? And you know what? Knowing Jose and how mentally strong he was, absolutely he can handle it. So now you get him every fifth day to go with what these guys have ability-wise and where they're coming. You can start to see light at the end of the tunnel and what's about to be. Then you throw in the Kohlers, you know, and guys who were steady contributors. Now things are turning, and it's about to go in a very good direction. So the core group is there of all the players that you've mentioned, including uh, Jose Fernandez and – Yet, yet, outside of individual accomplishments like batting titles and stolen base titles and, and, and home run titles and rookie of the years, DJ, no winning still happening. So Stan Meek takes a lot of blame from that, I think, in the public. Uh, Stan found all those players that you mentioned, but a lot of failed early round picks. The owner takes a lot of blame in the public. A lot of young kids traded for players that came back in and didn't perform. You were there. So what happened? Why did it never get to that next level? And then we'll lead into uh, you know, the, the season of you being asked to be the manager of the team. But, I, but why, did, why did nothing happen? It's probably a, a mixture of everything that you just brought up. Um, Stan was hitting on the high guys the depth in the draft that some organizations were having and have had in the past wasn't necessarily there. So that was somewhat of a factor. And it's hard to go out there when you're a scouting director and be perfect in every round on every pick. You know, it seems like, wow, this team's getting this and that. But when you look at the impact guys that he brought in, 
you know, at one time, no one had, I mean, you're talking about an MVP in Stanton, an MVP in Yelich, two-time All-Star and Silver Slugger winner in Ozuna, maybe one of the best catchers in baseball, or if not the best catcher in baseball, and one of the top three pitchers in, in Jose. All these guys were brought in in a one- to two-year window that gave us that boost that, that you needed to have. Then you make a trade and get a batting champion in D. Gordon, also a Gold Glove winner. So those pieces were coming. Some of them did not come fast enough. The depth of some of the drafts were not necessarily what they could have been or should have been. And then I'll go back to the one word, in my opinion, that derailed that franchise in so many ways during that time, and it's impatience. There comes a point, you know, everybody talks about the farm system, and you see that apple hanging on the tree, and it's a beautiful apple, but it's not completely red. It's partially green. I don't care how much money you paid to fertilize that apple and get that apple to grow and be a beautiful product it still takes the same amount of time. And if you rush these guys thinking that everybody is a Miguel Cabrera or a Dontrell Willis, you're going to end up slowing down their growth and the development that they need and getting the time and the reps. So that became somewhat of an issue, and there were some guys that got rushed to the major leagues. Number one, we were looking for help. Number two, they were the best that we had, but they were not right. They were still green. And you know what happens when you eat a green apple. <laughs> You've been clear on that. Yeah. So, uh, so 2015 comes, there's some player acquisitions there too. Uh, a commitment, right? Latos was a commitment to bring in. Um, Morse was a commitment to bring in. Mike Redman is the manager of the team. Uh, D. Gordon was brought in too. And there were some expectations there. Jose, at that point, I believe, was going to come back at that point during the season. So there was this thought process that, okay, well, you know, maybe the team will compete in 2014, but if they could just hang in there a little bit, you got Jose coming back to gravitate around everything else that's there, maybe this will work out. Well, we know what happened. The season wasn't going as planned. Then all of a sudden, we're all just kind of sitting around, and here comes the owner, Jeffrey Loria, firing another manager. This time he fires Mike Redman. And inevitably we're told that the next day we're going to find out who the manager is, and it's going to be one of the most out-of-the-box things that the Marlins have ever done, according to David Sampson. Well, that was indeed the case. Dan Jennings, who has never managed in the big leagues, is being asked to manage the Miami Marlins. I know that has got to be in your mind, how it happened, when it happened, and you've talked so rarely about this. I would appreciate if you could expand on that and how it happened and the call and, and did you want it, did you not want it? I mean, what, what happened to you? So that was beginning my uh, – I was hired at the end of 13 as general manager. 14, we go through, we improve uh, – I think we had the second most improvements in wins in all of baseball behind the Astros. So things are looking right. This young group of guys are starting to come together. We know you got Riamuto and some other kids who are knocking on the door. We've won some titles in Double A, so it's going in a good way. We make a decision at the end of '14 to renew Mike Redmond and his staff on the final day of the season. We notify them and let them know that. We go into the off season. We do some deals. We get Gordon. We make a trade. Get Latos. 
we bring in Mike Morse, who was fresh off the World Series, you know, local guy, World Series with the Giants. So we're trying to boost the young guys with some, some of the right veterans. We start the season in 15 in New York, and we do the absolute worst thing a Marlins team could do is get swept where the owner lived. It was a bad way to get going. We come out of the gate poorly. Then we kind of right the ship a little bit and things get going. And um, ownership is not happy. Just feels like the direction is there, some things that could be going the right way. We make a trip out west, and um, it's still it's not going well. We're just not playing well. We can't seem to hit our stride. And we come back home and play a weekend series against the Atlanta Braves. And we are in the process of being swept. And on this particular Sunday, May 17, Shelby Miller is no hitting us into the seventh or eighth inning. And that did it. That pushed Jeffrey to the point where he asked me, did I want to manage that? he would like for me to go down and manage, but whatever happened, he was going to relieve Mike Redmond of his duties. So we talk about it. I remember making the comment, Jeffrey, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but you need to make sure, are you ready for this? Because you're going to get chastised and you're going to get ripped and same here. So the decision is made. David and Mike Hill go down to inform Redmond and Leary that they've been relieved. I contact Mike Goff, who at that time was our advanced scout. The announcement's made the next day. We go in. I've never gone to bed one night in my life going, God, I want to be a major league manager. It's what I want to do. Am I thankful that I got the opportunity? Absolutely. It was the greatest education that you could not buy. It's helped me now look at games and understand putting a team together from a completely different set of eyes. When I first went down, the very first day I had a meeting with the staff. I told the staff, I said, I fully expect you guys to be a little hurt. You guys were close to Redmond, and if you're not, then I'm disappointed in you. Then we have a meeting with the staff and the players, and I get about five to eight minutes into this meeting, Jose Fernandez in the back of the room stands up and he says, DJ, we'd like to meet with you by yourself. No staff, just us and you. I get the staff out of the room. All There's only the players and myself in there. Jose says to me, he says, DJ, we love you because you're part of the reason that a lot of us are here. We know that you've got our back. What we need to know now is, are you going to have our back as the manager or is this going to be an extension of the front office? And I told him, I said, Jose, I'm thankful you had the guts to ask it. I said, because it is outside of the box, and if I were good enough to sit in this room, I would wonder the same thing. And I said, all I can do is ask you guys, give me an opportunity to earn your trust and earn your respect. I can't ask anything other than that. So we talked through some stuff. It started for about the first seven or eight days. Let me tell you, it's fast. 
and you got people that sit in the stands and you got front office people that sit in the third tier and they think anybody can manage and it's this and that, it's not. And if people think that it is, you're, you're kidding yourself. Then things started to normalize. Started to understand the bullpen, the bullpen usage. Leaned on my coaches, Chuck Hernandez, the pitching coach, in a great way. Things started to evolve. Jose come back. We we began to play much better. We were definitely, you know, we needed something like a miracle to happen for us to get a run. Giancarlo breaks his hamate bone. The decision was made to send Ozuna out because he was really struggling. So we took a huge hit in the power department. And, you know, we had to watch how and what we did with Jose. But down the stretch, down the stretch from about, I think it was someone sent me this article, about the 20, somewhere around the 20th of August, 25th of August, and you can look it up. You won eight of ten series, right? We, we won the most series since the 03 Marlins, mm-hmm. and we had the second best record in baseball behind the Chicago Cubs. And the thing that I was so appreciative of is you had a lot of young guys who were hungry to make their mark on the game. They were just coming into their own. They had a situation with a manager who they loved in Redmond, a guy that they loved when he was the general manager, come down on the field, and they played their rear ends off. Yelly played the last month or so of that season with a banged-up knee and ended up hitting 300. D. Gordon wins a batting title. You had uh, Jose come back in a fabulous way and pitched. So you had the thing that I was most proud of and that hurt me the most that some of the people in our organization didn't see or would not, would not acknowledge was that there was a culture change in that clubhouse. There was a leadership of a Martin Prado that stepped forward. You had a J.T. Riamuto who was emerging as a leader. There were guys who took on a different role and created a culture that people enjoyed coming to. And when I say the people, I'm saying the players because that was the most important piece of the puzzle. And I got to witness that, and I watched that evolve. Then when we go into Philly to close out the season, we get rained out on a Friday. We swept a doubleheader on Saturday. I made the decision to pitch Ichiro on Sunday. And I didn't know at that time my status. I had been told that I was going back upstairs in the GM's capacity. But there was a bond because those players knew just what I asked them that that first day. I had their back, and I climbed in a foxhole with them. And I saw the game and the way that players look at management from their perspective and their eyes, and it gave me a greater understanding and appreciation of being down on that field and knowing that the most important part of any organization are truly those players. And when you see it from their perspective, there's a lot of guys that think they're dumb and they don't have an understanding. It's a huge misnomer. They're dialed in to what's going on in that organization and around them. But uh, so before we get to you, and I went back and actually watched the press conference of the Marlins making the announcement that you wouldn't return as the manager. They said you would return as the general manager. So I have to ask you about that. The way that it started in my opinion, DJ, left no positive ending. It, it almost wasn't going to matter the way the season ended because of how poorly it started when you took over as manager. 
on local radio and television, you're you're the butt of jokes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, people are making fun that the Marlins hired their general manager to manage the team, and then you get off to such a poor start. They're putting a tie on you in the dugout for fun. I mean, you have a family. You have pride. You've been in baseball for 30 years. I cannot imagine what that must have felt like as you're going through it, this great moment that you have to be manager, and yet you had to just fight and scratch and claw to get any kind of respect. How did that feel? Well, the the tie thing was great. I, I was told that that was Ichiro's deal. He was going to do something, and he did it. Um, that showed me the bond that I had with them as a GM that carried into the manager part. They knew it was going to be different for me. They knew it was going to be fast. I get texts from these guys all the time. I call, and they call me all the time because it created a – Truly, it created a deeper respect both ways. Uh, when it was said that I was going to go back up, um, one of the players who's still there now reached out to me and said, DJ, now we have somebody that can bridge the front office to the players. And they were happy that that was going to take place because of what knowledge and the lessons that I learned. And now I could truly represent and see from their perspective. Um, we got off to an 0-4 start. Uh, maybe it was 0-5 start. We lost the first night in 13 innings to the Diamondbacks. Had you won some of those out of the gate, it might have changed a lot of stuff. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't because of lack of effort. Um, I know on some of the radio shows and, and the major networks, you know, it was I was told by one of the uh, national um, – TV guys, DJ, we've been asked to place you under a microscope because this is so outside of the box. And I said, I have no problem with that. Just be fair. Judge me fairly based on the moves that are made and the things that are done. And early, I would say that probably wasn't the case. I encouraged my wife and my kids. I said, whatever you do, don't read it. Don't watch it. Just know you're you're part of the ride but don't let it beat you up to the point where, you know, you're hurt or sad about what's going on. Then the first night we won, we beat Baltimore. The players took me in the shower. They doused me with everything. Uh, we go running into the pool at the uh, at the, the club out there in left field. You know, they we dive in the pool, and it's great because they were happy for me to see that, okay, now the onus is off. We've got the first win, and, and we can roll from there. So, as I said, was it, you know, looking back, had I known maybe that I wasn't going to get the opportunity to be with that team and take it into spring training and put my touch on it, I'd have probably never said yes. But saying that, it was the greatest experience that I've had in this game. It's opened my eyes to so many things. I've always known it was a player's game and have had great respect for their talents. And I got to see things, you know, you think you know how hard major league coaches work? Oh, man, you have no idea what these guys go through. It gave me a deeper and greater appreciation for the coaches, certainly the managers and running a game and all the stuff you have to be beware of. You know, you sit in the stands and you go, you know, why isn't he going to Jones right here? Well, what you don't know is Jones has got a bad arm or a bad leg, you know, or this kid's wife just had a miscarriage or other things that happen in the course of the game. So as you're putting that puzzle together in about the fifth inning in the National League, 
there's a lot of things that people are not privy to that cause you to make some decisions that you have to make based upon who's available that night. So you're hurt to not being given the opportunity to manage the team again. I, I'm putting words in your mouth. Are, I should ask you, are you hurt that you're told, no, you're not going to be the manager? You do not come back as the general manager. We all thought you were. And does this inevitably ruin your relationship with the owner, Jeffrey Loria, who you have been his right-hand man, essentially, for more than a decade? Uh, I wasn't hurt. I, my, I was frustrated because had I known that I was not going to you know, get the chance to take that team into spring training, I would have never said yes from the beginning. Um, when I was told I was going back upstairs, which that occurred on my birthday in New York after we had just won a series from the Mets. So David and Mike come into the clubhouse and they tell me that uh, Jeffrey's not going to bring you back. He's going to go get a name manager, uh, but you're coming back upstairs. So, okay, you know what? I'm, if that's what we're going to do, I got it. You know, I, I want you guys to at least recognize what's transpired here. There's some good things going on, how many of these series we've won, the changes culturally that have happened in the clubhouse. And uh, that was the part that probably hurt the most is because I felt like that was not recognized and, it, and truly, you know, not even paid attention to. And those players did that, and they did it in a way that created something good, certainly going into 16. And then when I was called and fired, that was somewhat of a shock to me, albeit not unexpected because Jeffrey and I, our relationship had deteriorated. Our communication had not only broke down, it had, it had broke off. And um, David called and said, look, um, we're not going to bring you back. Jeffrey has some other guys that are in his ear now that he's listening to and feels like it's best if we just turn the page. First time I'd ever been fired from anything. So I went through a wide range of emotions over the next two or three months. And then uh, Mike Rizzo reached out to me here, offered me a contract to come over. And you know what, it's been a great spot for me to go back to the basics of, of working for baseball people and thoroughly enjoying the time here. The last thing I want to ask you about, and then I want to ask you what you think that your baseball future holds, is without getting too much into the, the future of the Marlins, in my opinion, DJ, anything that happened in the past, any positivity or possible charge toward a wild card or even winning a division ended when Jose Fernandez passed away. People feel like the owner, Jeffrey Loria, sold the team Maybe he was going to sell it anyway, but that was just kind of the, the final thing. You saw him grow up. You saw him pitch. You were the manager with him pitching. Is that a fair assessment that once that happened, that kind of ended any hope for the franchise? I think it set the franchise back, Craig, no doubt about it. Um, I, as you know, I had a special – my wife used to make a joke. I don't know why you tell people we have three kids. We have four kids. That's just how close – we were when I was upstairs or when I was on the field. He was something that I had not seen in my 30 years. He was a talent. He was a gift. He embraced it. He was the perfect guy for Miami because he embraced his heritage. 
Uh, he embraced his freedom. I remember when he was getting his citizenship, he would come and say, Papi, I know more about this than you do. I know, I know stuff about the country, and we would test each other, and he would quiz me. And then, you know, getting to be his manager when he come back from that Tommy John, going through the rehab that he would do with Ron uh, Yacoub there in, uh, in Coconut Grove, which was right by my home. And I would go over there in the mornings at 8.30 because I, I knew he was a big teddy bear and he could get sensitive. And I did not want Jose to feel like, oh, man, they've forgotten about me, you know. I loved the kid. I loved his energy. He made, he made me upbeat and positive. But that happens, and it truly set the organization back. How many years? Yet to be determined. Certainly, Donnie had that team playing great. Mm -hmm. Guys had taken the next step. They were evolving into a team that, you know what, we don't like playing the Marlins. They're good, and they're real good when that guy's on the mound. I get the call. Uh, I'm out advancing for Washington. I'm in Los Angeles. Chuck Hernan uh, Hernandez calls me and says, uh, DJ, is that real? And I said, what? It's 5.30 in the morning out there. He says, you haven't heard. I said, Chuck, I'm in Los Angeles. What are you talking about? He said, Jose got killed last night. And I, I immediately call Mike Hill. I get the story. And I start crying like a child. I mean, I'm, I'm, he had convinced me that he was invincible, you know. Just he was, he was Jose. Um, and it was tragic. And there were two other people, special people, who lost their lives as well. But he was truly uh, the huge difference maker that could have helped carry them to that next level. And now they have new ownership. I, I truly believe that was a large part because I know what Jeffrey did for him. You know, I was there and, and a close part of when Jeffrey got his grandmother out of Cuba. And uh, just before we go to, uh, to watch him receive his Rookie of the Year, and I watched that embrace between the grandmother and Jose inside that clubhouse. It was one of the heart, most touching things I've ever seen. And you knew what real love was and the respect that he had for her and vice versa. So I have to believe that that factored in. I've not had any conversation with Jeffrey since uh, September of 15. And I have to believe that that played a huge part in his decision to ultimately sell the ball club. DJ, thank you so much for all of the time you've given me. I really appreciate it. Um, what What is in the future for you? Uh, what would you like to do? Uh, how would you like to still be involved in the game? You have a very high-level position here with the Nationals. I'm happy here. Mike Rizzo, I have tremendous respect for. We started about the same time, basically took somewhat of the same path to get to where he is. His track record, his success is off the charts. I mean, you look at the number of games that he's won uh, in the last 10 years, eight years, really outside the Dodgers, you know, they've the two winning is franchises. What I want to see happen is for us to win a World Series here in Washington for a good baseball man and Mike Rizzo. And one day, if the good Lord's willing, I hope that I get a chance to sit back in that chair as a general manager and utilize the experience of being in a front office and also couple that with being in that dugout and build something special. But right now, the number one goal is to win a World Series with the Nationals. Well, that was Dan Jennings speaking with Craig Mish. And Craig, I'm just wondering, did that surprise you that, that Jennings said he hasn't spoken to Loria since he was fired? 
It, it did surprise me a little bit. I, I think that through the years, as you've heard, as different people have had Jeffrey Lurie's ear throughout the term of him being the owner, and it does just kind of feel like scorched earth a little bit every single time, mm-hmm. whether it was Redmond or Girardi or Dan Jennings or you know, really any of, of the executives who worked with him. It was almost like you know, Jeffrey Loria had this ship out to sea, and it would just go you know, one way, and it would go the next way, and then the wind would blow the other way, and it just kept changing over and over again. And, and it was really unfortunate because, as he mentioned, uh, as Dan mentioned, I think that what I took away in terms of the on the field, and, I, and listen, some of that off the field stuff with Jose Fernandez and how close he was to him was fantastic. But in terms of the on the field stuff, Dan mentioned over and over again, patience. Several times he used that word saying we just didn't have the patience to develop. We just didn't have the patience to take a step back and not make trades at different times. And, and it's, it's ironic that this new regime is, is the exact opposite of what the old one was. And I don't think that's by coincidence. I think that they understand that that was what doomed the Marlins the first time around. And hopefully this new regime will be able to, uh, to have the patience next time around. But I also want to add this about Dan Jennings is that he mentioned some really interesting points about him being manager. People forget how good the Marlins played in late August and September with him as manager. They won eight of their last 10 series. It just started off so poorly that it was impossible for him to return. Jennings told me uh, that he wants the Washington Nationals to win the World Series. And being a special uh, assistant to Mike Rizzo, you can understand how his focus is definitely on that. But I can tell you without a doubt that uh, DJ wants to be a general manager again uh, in the big leagues. He's really hoping at one point to get that opportunity. And as I've said many times here on Swings and Mishes and publicly, in terms of a general manager of the Miami Marlins and Florida Marlins, I thought he was a fantastic general manager. I thought he got it. He was great. All, uh, rival executives would always say he's a fantastic guy to negotiate with. Um, I'm a big, big fan of Dan Jennings. And so I want to thank him personally because for him to expand and go through all that was really an honor for him to give me that story after all of the years that he had been with the franchise. So I do want to thank DJ once again here on the podcast for coming on. Yeah, thank you to Dan Jennings. And um, obviously one of one of the more uh, detailed interviews that we've had on here. Uh, so we're going to transition to one of the less detailed interviews that we've ever had on Swings and Missions. That, that and, would be and have, but, but fun, but fun. Have some fun. Uh, with Austin Dean talking sports movies. So enjoy this. And there's actually some future content coming in the next few days in regards to this topic as well. So you can look for that on our Twitter feed as well. So I had a couple of questions for you okay. on strictly, strictly talking about sports movies. Okay. Um, so where we'll start just first, I want to get your gauge. Do you have a top five sports movies? Yes, I do. I'm sure you've thought about this at least. Absolutely. Everybody always debates the best baseball movie of all time is Sandlot, obviously. Right. Um, that is definitely one of my tops, but uh, 61 is my favorite. Ooh. Love the uh, story about Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle hashing out in uh, 1961 going for Bruce record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would go there. Miracles number two. Okay. Sandlot three. Love the Bad News Bears. That's my that's my fourth. I can sit there. the original Bad News the Bears. The original though, right? Bad News Bears. Okay. I can sit that. I can sit there and watch that all day. And mm-hmm. five is uh, like there's like a 
there's a couple up there that can hash it out for five, and I really can't on the top of my head like just pick one. But okay, fair enough. Yeah. I know that you uh, you quoted a couple of of famous movies back in the in that video. Nine, if everybody hasn't there, seen yeah. it, I'll, I'll tweet it back out from our, our account at Swings and Mishes. But okay. I know you did. That was Space Jam. Space you Jam. Had Space, Space Jam. Jam and you had Angels. Angels in the Outfield. Those are two movies that. Whenever I do that, they don't get it right away. Right. But as soon as, you, like I said, they're like, oh, how did I forget it's that? About it's about a Spanish guy. It's about a Spanish guy. Yeah. You know, I've done that one a couple times, and uh-huh. they're just like, what are you talking about? I'm like, bro, you got to watch this movie, man. It's so funny. Like, yeah, those are classics. I mean, we're about the same age, so I think yeah. it's, you know, the child that, like, I growing grew, up dude, watching I grew those up movies. watching Angels in the Outfield. Like, I, re- I can recall a time, you know, like, this is like when VHS is where it's the thing. Yes, so, yes. Know, I would pop that movie in almost every single day and watch that movie. Had the exact same thing. Yeah. It was that and Rookie of the Year. Rookie of the Year, Big Green. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, green. my gosh, yes. <laughs> All right, all right. So with that being said, yeah. I have a couple quick games for you. Okay. So one, I'm just going to have you pick between a couple of different sets of baseball movies here. Okay. And you're going to have to narrow it down. So okay. quickly, just first thoughts on The Natural, which is what everybody's favorite. I'm not a huge fan of The Natural, to be honest. So I haven't watched The Natural until this year. Really? Yes. That okay. Everybody, like, people that I've talked to, like, dude, you never watched The Natural? I was like, no. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I just never had didn't have it growing up and now that I was older like you can pretty much watch any movie anywhere yeah. so and it was on MLB Network and I watched it I'm like always on MLB yeah. Network and I was like this is the first time I'm actually watching that uh-huh. and I'm like it's not a bad movie it just didn't like I couldn't I couldn't grasp it couldn't, yeah, I couldn't mm-hmm. do it but like the story of Roy Hobbs and you know Wonder Boy like mm-hmm. cool. it's cool yeah alright so you can give it it's love yeah uh, alright so then I'm just gonna have you just straight up Major League or The Sandlot Major League Major League Little Big League or Angels in the Outfield. Oh, that's a tough one because those are two childhood movies for us, right? Little Big League, League, so good. My God, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, man, but you gotta make a choice. I'm gonna have to go Little Big League over Angels in the Outfield. So good. I love the fact that the The music in the in the movie is so great too. Who was it? It Lou Clark uh, and then Uh Billy. Billy, Billy Haywood. Haywood. Billy, Billy Haywood. Haywood. And I, then you can refer to me as Bill Haywood. Yeah, you can refer to me as Bill Haywood. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. So I think I know your answer here, but mm-hmm. Bad News Bears or Bench Warmers? Bad News Bears. Bad News Bears. Bench Warmers sure. was good when it came out. I went and saw that. Like, it doesn't age times. the same way. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny, but Bad News Bears was way better. Okay. And then just two more on this one mm-hmm. and then one last game. So okay. Rookie of the Year or The Rookie? Two different stories, man. Totally different. Right, rookie of the Year is just... They just got the same name, basically. Yeah. That's, why I, that's why I grouped them together. Yeah. The Rookie of the Year is totally fan, like fantasy-based. Like, it's mm-hmm. funny. And then you have The Rookie, which is actually based on a true story. Like, it depends on what kind of movie. I'd say more probably Rookie of the Year than The Rookie. Rowan Gardner. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, you got to pick the best Kevin Costner baseball movie. Oh, Bull Which Durham. is impossible. Bull Durham. Bull, really? Bull over, Durham, Overfield over of Dreams, over and Over Dreams, for Love of the Game. Love game. Bull Durham for sure. 100%. Okay. And then this is just a quick game here. Okay. We're going to say, so how Die Hard, some mm. people say it's a Christmas movie. Some people say it's not a Christmas movie. We're going to do, is this a sports movie okay. or is it not? Okay. Richie Rich. Is Richie Rich not a sports, sports, not a sports, not a sports movie. movie? Not a sports movie. Wedding Crashers with the big football scene. Nope, not, not a sports, not a sports movie. movie. High School Musical. I might have stumped you here. Dang. Is High School Musical a sports movie? There's a lot of sports in it, mm-hmm. but it's not solely based around sports. It's about musicals, right? So it's not a sports movie. Not a sports movie. It's got sports in it. It's not. I a sports was talking movie. with some of the social media people earlier, and they were all in on it being a sports no, movie. No, so not, not a sports not movie. A sports movie. Okay, 
couple more for you, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Forrest Gump. Not a sports movie. Plays for Alabama football, still wins not, a gold medal. But still not a sports not movie. Not a sports because movie. Because if you look at the overall story of him, it's about his life uh-huh. and him trying to chase Jenny all around the country. And it's not a sports movie. If it was totally uh-huh. talking about, like, just football, then yes. <laughs> okay, so... I'm so, so, I'm so, so like, doing, critical so on then, it. So then for you, Die Hard is not a Christmas it's movie. It's not a Christmas right, movie. Right, okay, so that's, that's sort of the logic here. So mm-hmm. then I think I know your answers here. Wayne's World? Hockey? <laughs> yes? No? I don't know. <laughs> That's an iffy. I don't know. All right. And then just two more for you. Go ahead. She's the Man with Amanda Bynes. Sports movie. Sports movie. All right. We finally got one. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, Fight Club. Sports movie. Sports movie. Austin, you're the man. Thank you. (laughs)